Well, good morning. Some of you are thinking, what an encouraging scripture reading. Right? That was as sweet like a psalm, wasn't it? Some of you are like, should we even stay for the rest of the service? And the answer is yes. And there's a specific reason I had that reading be read for us. The repetition of it, the graphic details of it, um, and, I'll, and, and you'll see why in just a few minutes. So turn in your scriptures to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament, after the Gospels, after the book of Acts. And turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know what was going through your mind while that was read this morning, but there, there was sacrifice, certainly, and there was blood splattering, and there was death, even in the graphic details of wringing off its head. The book of Hebrews actually answers the question of why so much blood and death. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law, and last week we looked at the different covenants, this would be the old covenant, or what is often called the Mosaic covenant, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What you'll see in the Old Testament is sort of this endless, vicious cycle. God gives His law. And contingent upon obedience or disobedience, there is either blessing or cursing. Then they would receive the law, they would obey for a while, then they would disobey. That would be sin. John says sin is the transgression of the law. Then there was an offering, like you read this morning, and then there was restoration. And then there was obedience, and then there was disobedience, and that cycle just kept doing this over and over again as a shadow of something better. And if you lived during those days, what you were longing for from the different covenants was a specific individual to break that cycle so that you wouldn't have to offer these sacrifices continually. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. In reference to the law, in reference to the sacrifices, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Last week, we began trying to get some clarity on the different covenants in the Old Testament because it's really vital uh, to our understanding of in the entire redemptive history from creation to new creation. <coughs> Excuse me. We looked at six different covenants. I'm just going to review those quickly. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there is what is called the Edenic, or often these are put under sort of the representative head's names. It's the Adamic covenant. And there's a lot of different parts to that, but the promise in Genesis 3.15 is that God would provide a wounded victor. 
He will be wounded while he is crushing the serpent's head. That's the promise. Matter of fact, John says this in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God, the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says this, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So the promise of Genesis 3.15, of a descendant who would finally come and restore and redeem, was kept. Then there's the Noahic covenant. In Genesis 9.11, God promised to Noah, and by extension, all of humanity, after he literally cleansed the world, he washed the world of its violence and bloodshed. He uncreated the world, then recreated the world. And he promised to Noah that he would never destroy the earth again with a universal deluge, a universal flood. And he put, a, he put a, his bow in the sky as a sign of that covenant. So that when it rains and you see that bow, you're supposed to recall the promise that God made to Noah and by extension to us that he would never destroy the world like that again. But he did say this. There's a warning that the earth would be destroyed one day by fire. And Jesus, like the ark, is a refuge, a safe place, a salvation. In the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, God promised Abraham several things. And one of those is that through a specific descendant, like Genesis 3.15, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Of course, Abraham tries to take things into his own hands, and it's not Ishmael. It has to come through the line of Isaac. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, in Galatians, Paul's going to say that you are children of promise if you're in Jesus Christ. And he actually makes the comparison of the son of the slave woman and the son who is Isaac. Paul says this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And listen to what Paul says, who is Christ. God kept his promises. Then you have probably what is the most familiar and the most disturbing of all the covenants, especially to post-post-modern Christians, and that is the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. Exodus chapters 19 to 24 sort of spell out this covenant with all its positive commands, about 300, and negative commands, about 300. For example, Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Covenant is simply an agreement between two or more parties. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What you have extending from that is primarily disobedience. And then they experienced the curses connected to the Old Covenant. God sends them into exile, not unlike the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. He now sends them into exile. This is all part of moving from creation to new creation. You have the Davidic Covenant of 2 Samuel 7, where God promised an eternal king through the line of David. A matter of fact, when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah, right? The promise kept of Genesis 3.15. The promise kept in Genesis 12 to Abraham. 
The angel said this, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end, an eternal kingdom. Then finally, the prophets, while God's people were exiled, started to prophesy about a new covenant, something that they had never experienced before, something that wasn't connected to all the laws on the stone tablets. And in Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming. It's future. Declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant with Passover and Exodus and laws. My covenant that they broke, for this is the covenant that I will make. And listen to verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant. If anything was central to the old covenant or to the ceremonial laws defined in the Mosaic covenant, it was the tabernacle. Some of you have done extensive studies on the tabernacle Uh, For our understanding, the tabernacle really was composed of three different parts. They're mentioned in the New Testament. It was a simple structure, yet a complex illustration, if you would. It was a picture sermon when you would go and approach the tabernacle. Look at Hebrews 8. You should still be at Hebrews 10. Look back two chapters to Hebrews 8, because the New Testament specifically mentions the tabernacle and its furnishings. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 8, verse 13, and I'll read all the way to to chapter 9, verse 1. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Now, there were several. We just rehearsed those, but he's referring to the primary central covenant of the law. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Right after reading Leviticus 1, we're thankful for that. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent. That's one of the words used for the tabernacle. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense And the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The tabernacle foreshadowed something. If you understand the setup, there was one single entrance the only way you could enter by law. I mean, and it's not hard for us because the age that we live in to think that Jesus said he is the way, the truth, the life. No one goes unto the Father except through him. Tabernacle literally means the place of dwelling. The only difference really between the tabernacle and the temple is that one was portable and could be carried and set up as they wandered the wilderness, and the temple is a permanent structure. The picture, the layout are the same. 
The theology that it detailed was the same. Now, and here's where we must not confuse the object lesson with the reality. God signified by coming down and, and saying that he would meet with them between the cherubim on the mercy seat. Okay, that's the Ark of the Covenant. Don't confuse that with the reality. The reality is that God is everywhere all the time. He, he, is, he, he cannot be held to a church building just like he was not held to the tabernacle. It is a picture that God would meet with them according to his design and according to his plans. The other picture then was that access to him was restricted unless you followed the law. The tabernacle typified the presence of God and foreshadowed a time. So, so here's the object lesson with the reality. It foreshadowed a time when Jesus would. It's interesting, the word in John chapter one, when he would tabernacle among us, he would dwell with us. Matter of fact, the tabernacle illustrated what the name Emmanuel declared in Isaiah 714 and fulfilled in Jesus meant. And that is God with us. Beautiful picture, because in the wilderness, God, des God desired to identify with his people. His people were living in tents. God would also show his presence in a tent. Hebrews 9.2 says, for a tent was prepared. That shadow turned into reality when Jesus was born. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. John 1.14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt tented, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Why did he do that? Why did he tent among his people? Romans 8, 3 to 4 says this, for God has done what the law, the Mosaic covenant, weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, listen to this, might be fulfilled in us. Christ's perfect obedience is actually now transferred to you and me as though we kept the law perfectly. We all know we haven't. The reason the Son of God tabernacled among us was the priestly work he came to do. If you're still in Hebrews, look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, by the way, that's one of the key individuals in, in part of the tabernacle setup. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, the new covenant, then through the greater and more perfect. What's the next word? Tent. Not made with hands that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Some of you know that as the holy of holies. Not by means of the, of the blood of goats and calves. Does that mean no blood was required? No, keep reading. But by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus is both the tabernacle, the tent, and the high priest, and the sacrifice. Is that clear? I mean, Hebrews is just like, like a flower is just blooming this theology before us. The tabernacle is a tent, but it's also called a sanctuary. Interesting that that's the word 
that, that Christians often use for the place where we meet together. Right now we call it an auditorium, uh, but they used to call it a sanctuary. It's not a bad picture. It simply means the place of holiness. Exodus 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. In Hebrews 9, 1, you're there in Hebrews, look at verse 1. It's called an earthly place of holiness. The tabernacle is also called the tent of testimony, which is a place of revelation. It's where God chose to speak to Moses. It's where he chose to speak to his people and explain himself and reveal who he was to the children of Israel. It's also called a tent of meeting, which suggests communion and fellowship. The lesson is that meeting with God is not haphazard or casual. There were definite restrictions and responsibilities. Exodus 25:22 says, "There, speaking of the tabernacle, I will meet with you." Exodus 29:42, "It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there." In Exodus 30 verse 6, he says, "Where I will meet with you." Okay, let's get let's get a picture of this shadow in our minds so that we can then discern the fulfillment and the reality. The tabernacle had three distinct sections. There was the outer court, the holy place, and then the most holy place. The outer court was under the open sky and it was accessible, interesting, to the entire covenant community. The holy place was veiled but lighted and accessible only to the priests. And most of you know this, the most holy place, the holy of holies, was accessible how often? Once a year, by who? Or by whom? By the high priest. And not without blood. Scripture is very clear that he gets to go in one time a year. It's one man designated for that office. And he better not go in there without blood. The floor plan vividly pictures that the closer somebody approached God, the greater the restrictions. The closer you move towards the holy of holies, the more dangerous it became. And the requirements went from here to here to here. As it narrowed down, you had the entire covenant community. You had priests. You had a high priest, a single mediator. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 6. These preparations having thus been made... The priests go regularly into the first section, right? The holy place, performing their ritual duties. Verse 7, Hebrews 9. But into the second, okay, the most holy place, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So don't miss the significance of the reality that the shadow pointed to. Let me read to you. Matthew 27, verse 50. 
Here is a picture of Jesus Christ, a high, our high priest, hanging on the cross as a sacrifice. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, here's one of the first, first reactions. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is the significance of that? The old is now done away with. You have daily, minute by minute, access to God. There is no covering. There is no shield. There is no restriction if you are in Christ. You can actually approach boldly through Him to God. The furnishings of the tabernacle point to this. I don't want to focus on all of the furnishings. I actually want to focus on two furnishings in the outer court. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. I'm actually going to read this in the New Living Translation. So if your translation is a little different, that's why. Hebrews 10, verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Right? Because when, you read, when we read out loud Leviticus 1, did anybody have this thought? Those are good things. No, and you move from you move from the bull to the to the goats to the sheep. You're not you're not going. These are good things. And then the splattering of the blood on the wall. It's got to be. No, we're not going. This is so delightful and so good. No, it is a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Listen to what, look at what it says. Not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. So as you approached this structure, there was a single entryway. And the first thing you saw was the altar upon which the burnt sacrifice was placed. It was accessible to everyone. It was obvious you could not get to the labor behind it without first confronting death and blood and the stench of burnt flesh. Hebrews 9.22, look back there. It says, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. We got the point just by reading one chapter this morning. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why? Well, God said in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And the wages of sin is death. Keep reading Hebrews 9. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with Far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. So even though we're talking about an incredible new covenant, the new covenant also hinged upon a sacrifice. Therefore, God sent his son. The sacrificial system was deliberately designed to be graphic, though imperfect. It was designed to be a graphic picture of the work of Christ. The actual sacrifices were picture sermons of the gospel. 
children in that covenant community as they as they tented in tribal manner around the tabernacle would ask, why did that lamb have to die? It was intended to be before them so they understood the penalty of sin. The burnt offering was the most general of the sacrifices. There were others, but this is the most well-known. Here are a few important foreshadowing details of this sacrifice. Number one, and it was read, it was read several times this morning, the animal selected for this offering had to be a male without blemish. Symbolically, this taught that the only acceptable sacrifice had to be perfect, pure, and blameless. Sometimes people find it disturbing that it said it was a sweet-smelling aroma to God, causing some to charge God with being a lover of death and war and violence. Remember, it foreshadows something. It's not the reality. Don't confuse the object lesson with the reality. The reality is that one day there will be a death, shed blood, that God will accept and be pleased with. And we know that He was pleased with the death of His Son because He rose again three days later. It was a perfect male without blemish. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.18, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was, listen to this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ was not plan B. Jesus is not a reaction to the garden gone wrong. Somehow, this was God's plan before the foundation of the world. Somehow, He receives greater glory for the way things transpired. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the reality. Not only did it have to be a male without blemish, it's interesting that the offerer leaned on the animal. Let me reread Leviticus 1 verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I remember when we lived in Kenya, our Pedigree Rottweiler was hit by a vehicle and it broke his leg. And we brought him in and realized that if we kept him, he would be constantly attacked by the other dogs. And so we took him to the veterinarian. And there you've got to make sure that you are with the dog because sometimes they will try to repair the dog and resell it. And so if you want to be certain that um, your request to have your dog or pet put down is done, you're with the dog. It's the first time for me that I had my hand on his head and felt life go out of him. So I sat there and I wept, talked to him. Why, why do they have to put their hand on the animal? Close connection of your sin resulting in a substitute. A death that you should have died. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. There was a transfer of your sin to an innocent animal. That's the picture. And you felt it. It's the same thing they did with the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Two goats were chosen out of the herds and they would cast lots and one was sacrificed. And the other one, the high priest would place his weight on the scapegoat, the Azazel, and he would confess openly the sins of the community, the sins of Israel, while he's leaning on the goat and then they'd run it off into the wilderness and the picture was... The the nation's sins being carried away. But again, not without what? Not without blood and death of the other goat. Third, not only did they lean on the animal, the offerer had to kill the animal. Everything else is done by the priest, but this is done personally. Leviticus 1 verse 5, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Again, a person felt the penalty of the sin. A person had to be involved in the killing. Let me just read to you. I, just, I want you to kind of focus your mind on some New Testament references. God's mercy provided a substitute, even though his justice demanded death. Romans 4.25 says this about Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There is no legal declaration that you are innocent. There is no legal declaration that you have been justified without death. Romans 5.6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. John the Baptist knew the connection. That's why when he saw Jesus, it says this in John 29, Behold, out of all the things he could have said, the Redeemer or the Messiah or the Rescuer or the Champion or King of Kings, Lord of Lords, what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. I love this. Verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. That's what Christian leaders are supposed to do. Make a big deal about Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Not build a cult following or their own sort of designer label church philosophy. There's the Lamb of God. Follow Him. The one true and pure substitute for sin. Matter of fact, Christ's dying as the perfect sacrifice was the only way that God could be both just in demanding death for sin and the justifier legally declaring you to be righteous. This is what Romans 3, 23 to 26 says. For all have sinned, you know this verse, and fall short of the glory of God. Keep reading and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an appeasement of God's wrath. How did he do that? How was God's wrath satisfied? By his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Genesis 3.15 now has a name in Jesus. And of course, you saw that the priests burned the entire sacrifice on the altar. Listen to Ephesians 5.2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as we move from creation to new creation, it's important to understand that this new covenant in which we live in which we partake some of the blessings now, others will be fully realized that there is still a sacrifice that had to be made. A few more scripture. Romans 6.10 For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Right? The cycle's broken. Hebrews 7.27 He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Why? Because it became mechanical. Just like Tim said, church, a church service can become. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Hebrews 10.10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Revelation 15.3. I want you to see this connection as we close. And they sing. This is, this is the new creation. This is future. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The connection between old covenant dissolving into the new covenant. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. That's the burnt offering. And guess what happens after death happens and blood is shed? You get to go to the labor where the priest in your place, you don't get to wash, but the priest stands in your place and does a ritual of cleansing. Do you know what Jesus did for you? Titus 3 says this, Our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of of the Holy Spirit. And you can say this verse with me. If we confess our sins, go ahead and say it out loud. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. Two final verses and then I'll invite the music team forward. 
Revelation 7.14, they have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 22.14, the last chapter of the last book of your Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. By the way, I was going to go through this. We'll do this next, uh, probably not next week, in two weeks, contrasting the garden where there were leaves for covering and, and the new city where there's leaves for healing, where there's death, but there's no death. Do you know there is no tent or temple or sacrifice in the new heavens and the new earth and the new city? Revelation 21:22 says this, and I, out of all the amazing things he saw, it says this, and I saw no temple in the city. No more sacrifice. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. And you're not going to be surprised by this. And the Lamb. The Lamb is our eternal hope. No more blood. No more suffering. No more death. No more pain. God is its temple and the Lamb. We'll invite our music team forward. And after this sermon... We're going to sing a hymn of response that is a new hymn for us. And it is entitled, The Blood of Jesus Speaks for Me. It may be unfamiliar to you. If it is, just get a feel for the song, but don't miss the words that you're singing. And if you'd rather just sit there and meditate on the words while the team sings, that is fine. If you know it, sing with us. We will sing these words, The Blood of Jesus Speaks for Me. When my accuser makes the claim that I should die for my offense, I point him to that rugged frame where I found life at Christ's expense. See from his hands, his feet, his side, the fountain flowing deep and wide. Oh, he did shout the victory. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. Let's pray.